You're listening to the N2K Space Network. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. We cover a lot of ground here at T-Minus. Here's a little sneak peek behind the curtain for the crew. We've organised our reporting with critical information requirements around 18 different space industry segments, and there's emerging intelligence on nearly all of them every week. But one particular segment seems to drive the industry more than any other. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is military space. T-minus. 20 seconds to LOS. Today is June 28, 2023. I'm Alice Carruth, and this is T-minus. U.S. House Appropriations Committee recommends cuts to Space Force's FY24 requests. Space Delta 9 is preparing for potential conflicts in space. Ramon Space has announced that it's raised 26 million U.S. dollars. And our presenter, Maria Valmarza, speaks to Joshua Weston from Spaceforge about in-space manufacturing. You don't want to miss a minute, but first, on to today's briefing. House Appropriations Committee approved a $826.4 billion US dollar defence budget for fiscal year 2024, recommending nearly $1 billion in cuts from the US Space Force's $30 billion request, citing programme performance concerns. This includes a lack of long-term budgeting for certain programmes, such as the Next Generation Overhead Persistent Infrared Ground Programme, Deep Space Advanced Radar Capability Site, and GPS User Equipment Increment 2. The largest cuts are proposed for classified programs, communication satellite programs, and GPS systems. The Space Force budget request is 15% larger than this year's budget. The committee highlighted several poorly performing acquisitions, such as the GPS Next Generation Operational Control System and the Space Command and Control Program. It also questioned the proposal to cancel the Next Gen OPIR missile warning geostationary satellite without sufficient analysis, given its strategic importance. The committee warns the Space Force against relying on continued double-digit budget increases to cover future shortfalls or reduce acquisition risk. These developments underscore the importance of effective performance, planning and justification in the acquisition and funding of space programmes. 
Regardless of the concern expressed by the US Congress, a new report released by Markets and Markets still expects the space militarization market valued at 53.7 billion US dollars in 2023 to reach 88.6 billion US dollars by 2030, growing at a compound annual growth rate of 7.4%. The report identifies increasing geopolitical tensions and advancements in the space sector as the driving factors for growth. In particular, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance are expected to drive market demand. In what should come as no surprise, the US will continue to hold the largest market share during the forecast period due to the presence of major space militarization manufacturers. Elsewhere in military space, a report from Defence One published last night details how Space Delta IX, a unit of the US Space Force, is preparing for potential conflicts in space in response to provocations from Russia and China. The unit trains guardians in both offensive and defensive strategies to preserve access to space. It primarily emphasises space domain awareness to prevent operational surprises and respond to threats to friendly capabilities, likening the unit's activities to the neighbourhood watch of the space domain. However, at a recent Mitchell Institute event, Major General David Miller, Director of Operations, Training and Force Development for US Space Command, argued that counter-space weapons are vital for space superiority and security. We're left wondering, as in the in-space economy continues to grow rapidly, what sort of offensive capabilities should we expect to see in the near future? Ramon Space, a space-resilient computing infrastructure provider, announced today that it's raised $26 million US dollars from Ingrasis, a subsidiary of Foxconn Technology Group, and the Strategic Development Fund, an Abu Dhabi-based investment firm. Built around in-house radiation hardening technology, Ramon Space's platform provides storage, computing, and connectivity capabilities for space missions. The technology offers a foundation for satellite communications, remote sensing, autonomous robotic spacecraft, and space exploration. And staying with the congratulatory theme, British space startup Odin Space has successfully demonstrated the operation of its space debris sensor technology in orbit. Odin's demo sensor was integrated to the deorbit ION satellite that was part of the recent SpaceX Transporter 8 mission. The data captured by the demo sensor marks an important step in creating vital information about small space debris. It brings the company a step closer to producing its fully commercial sensor, capable of mapping debris between 0.1 millimetres and 1 centimetres, measuring its size and location. Staying in Europe and continuing with that positive news, and German startup Airmo has announced its pre-seed funding round of 5.7 million US dollars, which the company says it plans to use to launch a satellite constellation to monitor greenhouse gases. Airmo's satellite will be equipped with spectrometer and light detection and ranging technology, or LIDAR to most of us, to detect and measure greenhouse gas emissions. The company claims that their micro-LIDAR monitoring service provides the most precise and close to real-time insights into people's impact on the climate. Now we've been rooting for PLD Space and their first test flight from Spain, but it seems that we will have to wait a little longer for that first launch. The rocket company says that the weather has now caused a delay for the first flight of its suborbital rocket to at least September after technical issues caused initial scrubs. Spain has restrictions in place throughout the summer to prevent wildfires that expend to rocket engines. Sensible, really. The push for the moon's south pole is heating up, and our friends down under want to be in on the action. 
Australian startup Fleet Space has been awarded over 2.5 million US dollars by the Australian Space Agency for its Moon to Mars demonstrator program. We love an acronym on this show, and this has to be a new favourite. Fleet Space has been chosen for the project Seismic Payload for Interplanetary Discovery, Exploration and Research Demonstration Mission, known as SPIDER, on a commercial lunar payload services delivery. This will be the first step of Seven Sisters, an Australian mission to explore the Moon and Mars. We've got some new hires in the space industry to congratulate. The first is the United Nations has announced that Artie Holomaney will lead the Office for Outer Space Affairs as its director. Holomaney lives in the UK and is a satellite expert. Her resume is impressive, having previously been the long-term Secretary-General for the Global Satellite Operators Association and a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Space and is also an expert advisor on the Space Traffic Management for European Union Studies, among many other roles. Best of luck to Artie. And our guest coming up is Josh Weston, CEO of Spaceforge, which has just announced the appointment of Andrew Parlock as Managing Director of New US Space Operation. We'll be hearing more about that company in just a moment. But that concludes today's briefing. There are so many reports and additional stories that we just didn't have time to dive into today, but we've included them in our show notes for you to digest when you have the chance. And hey, T-Miners crew, if you find this podcast useful, please do us a favor and share a five-star rating and a short review on your favorite podcast app. It will help other space professionals like you find the show and join the T-Miners crew. Thank you. We really appreciate it. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. presenter Maria is out for the week on a much-needed vacation, but before she departed the studio, she spoke to Joshua Weston at Spaceforge, and she started off asking, what does Spaceforge do? Really, we're an advanced materials company, but our edge is that we happen to produce those materials in space. We do that on a platform of our own invention, the Forge Star, uh, the world's first returnable and relaunchable satellite platform which we effectively operate as miniature factories in space to produce these materials that are simply impossible to manufacture on Earth. So why is this important that we make things in space and get things back onto Earth? Basic question, but like, what's behind your mission? Why is it driving you? Earth is the best place to look at how to answer this question first. Earth is a wonderful place to live. It's basically a terrible place to build. Every industrial process that we have, we have to fight against the natural constraints of our planet to achieve it, whether or not that's making house bricks all the way through to making the world's most advanced semiconductor chips. That's because we have to contend with gravity, a dense ambient atmosphere filled with contamination, uh, and a fairly consistent, albeit rising, temperature across the planet. In space, you have microgravity, 
you have a complete absence of uh, atmosphere known to us as high purity vacuum. And you have plus or minus 250 degrees Celsius, just depending on which way you're facing. And what those three aspects of the environment that you're surrounded by in space enable is ultimately a far superior manufacturing baseline for almost any industrial process. There's very little need to go and make red solo cups in space. You don't need to worry about something like that. But there are things where it can really count. Um, high purity semiconductors, next generation alloys, all the way through to things that make up, uh, for example, the pharmaceuticals and the drugs that we might use in COVID vaccination um, or treating some of the world's most aggressive cancers. We are finding the opportunity to use space to produce things that simply would hit the limit here on our planet. But there's also radiation out in space that makes things really challenging, too. Of course, um, <laughs> that's not a small thing. But y- your company has a very, very unique approach. The, the whole Forge Star platform, I think, is just really fascinating. Can you talk about how you came up with this idea um, and, and how you came up with Forge Star? I can't take the credit for coming up with Forge Star. My, my, my contribution was the name. We had originally hoped to call it Star Forge, and then we found out that was trademarked by George Lucas. So that was not a battle we wanted to get into when we were but two people working in a garage. Uh, so my co-founder, Andrew, um, who is a fantastic engineer, developed the Forge Star concept. Um, it really came about from two directions. The first of those was that there wasn't scalable infrastructure available to us in space to, to build things. Uh, if we wanted to go to the International Space Station, you know, you're confined into a very small experimental space. Uh, and then you have to, you know, wait for the astronaut to be ready, have some availability to fine-tune your experiment or to kick it off or to even collect the product. So we needed to find a way that we could do in-space manufacturing in a way that was scalable. Uh, the second limitation was that there was no return infrastructure available from space. We had no way of getting the product. We were, again, on something like the International Space Station, where we could only use cargo return flights to get home. So that really, that, from those two axes, the vehicle of Ford Star was born out of frustration, that we couldn't believe that there wasn't a way to access this space environment to produce these next-generation semiconductors and alloys uh, and, and be able to bring them back. And we started as a, as a payload company with developing our core semiconductor techniques. And then everything else was built around serving that payload. Uh, and it's been, uh, yeah, it's been a hell of a journey. I was going to say, talking about payload return, Pridwin, it's been in the news a lot. It Visually, we don't often get really cool visuals like that when we talk about like space industry, but man, Pridwin looks really cool. I I, I, yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the amount of credibility that uh, animation has done for us has been phenomenal. I uh, believe it. From a marketing perspective, that is gold. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying having people send it to me uh, saying that they finally understand what it is that I'm talking about, which, which, is, which is really helpful because for years, we've been incredibly secret squirrel about what we've been building. And... Uh, until now, the only way that I've described Pridwin is like Mary Poppins, but in space. Now that people can see that it looks a bit like an upside-down umbrella, the uh, where I at least got that analogy from, even though it doesn't look anything like a carpet bag carrying nanny. How do you envision it being used in the long term? With Pridwin, what we're finding is that in many ways, we're not finding anything. We're yet to find its limit of operation. We're yet to find the limit of its size of operation. We're yet to find an environment or a landing location that it can't work with. From a return perspective to Earth, we are unique in that we are relatively geography agnostic as to where we come to. 
by and large, that means we can either come back to a sea location or we can come back to a land location. Very few vehicles are compatible with that. They also need vast expanses of empty land to be able to operate. Because we're so much more gentle in our return operation, we can really shrink the footprint of our return locations, allowing us to target much smaller areas to return payloads to our customers or experiments to researchers much more easily uh, and closer to where their end labs might be. That then has a very useful application that when we're trying to land things on the moon or Mars and we're trying to do site selection and worry about jagged rocks and things, you suddenly also need a much smaller area to select for your landing location for planetary exploration. Uh, So we're seeing a huge array of opportunities, both in how we serve humanity and people back here on Earth, but also how we reach it further into our solar system, uh, both in this one and perhaps even beyond one day. One day, one day. But even in this solar system, that's that's a fascinating prospect. I mean, for something that's returning back to Earth, potentially this is something where, you know, (laughs) I'm just imagining somebody standing out in the parking lot, maybe not literally that much, but just kind of going, (laughs) getting something, maybe not like that. That would be... If we can do that one day, I'll be very, very happy. Uh, uh, yeah, but cer- certainly, I mean, you know, one of, so so many of the limitations of, of how we can serve our customers are because of the time it takes to get from that recovery location to elsewhere. For example, you know, if you've brought a payload back down on uh, SpaceX Dragon, phenomenal vehicle, but because it's landing in the Florida coastline, you then need to get your payload out, get it to an airport, and if you're in Singapore, it's then like another 22 hours by plane to get to to get to Singapore. Uh, so it just it just takes a long time, whereas perhaps if you could land in Australia instead, then you're only going to be six or five hours away. So at a recent event, I noticed that there was some really cool messaging about Forge Star and the path to net zero. So can you talk a little bit about how you envision Space Forge making a positive impact there? Ultimately, we started Space Forge with the goal of, I mean, I, I, God, I almost dread to use our tagline of making space work for humanity. But we felt that the two most underserved aspects of the space environment is the microgravity and the high purity vacuum. Traditionally, we only take advantage of it being really the ultimate high ground. Now, those two aspects of microgravity and vacuum, as I've said previously, allowing you to create materials that you can't make here on Earth, allow you to create materials that effectively leapfrog our current capabilities. Our focus at Space Force specifically is on producing next generation semiconductors in space. Those semiconductors, when returned back to Earth, consume 60% less energy than the semiconductors that we use today. So if you can imagine things like even the the energy bill for 5G, for example, uh, in in the UK alone, it's um, almost $2 billion a year just to run the 5G cell towers. That's before you're using all your mobiles and looking at videos of cats and everything else and what's next on Netflix. The opportunity to reduce that by 60% in one market even in something like telecoms, means that for every kilogram of CO2 we create a space forge, we can prevent up to 80 tons being emitted on the ground. What that then led us to from that sort of burgeoning idea is that ultimately we're going to be in a position of space forge to become the world's first carbon negative space company, and arguably the world's first carbon negative semiconductor company too. I love that. That's fantastic. I, I wish you all the best because that is a very admirable goal on both fronts. How will your technology at Space Forge transform the space industry and how we use space overall? From an industry perspective, we play an interesting position that we are firmly a hardware company, but operating in the space market where our customer is not another space company. 
So having the opportunity to produce things in space which serve other industries on the ground in electronics, whether or not that's telecom, renewable energy, automotive, or quantum computing, provides us with a different lens to how we operate and how we produce our platforms and how we think about our customer bases. And I think that's really critical because the industry needs to look broader. And I think Earth Observation does a good job with this as to how, for example, it thinks about how people use its data on the ground to fight climate change. As how to it come to make the world a better place, I guess is a good way to think about it, part of your question. It's about making space a keystone of the industries that we have on the ground. We can't produce everything in space right now, nor would you want to. But those keystone technologies like advanced chips that you can produce in space that have such a profound impact on the ground start to make space a part of everybody's supply chain. And if you can start to do that, then you can start to move supply chain off of Earth. And my view is that you can start to industrialize space to save Earth. It's quite profound, but I think we have a real opportunity here to redress the balance that we have as humans with the finite natural resources of this planet. We can do that by starting to move industry into space to leverage even the baseline environment that we have there. And that's even before we start to get into things like mining asteroids they must buy. And we'll be right back. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust Plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero-trust-ai. Have you ever wondered what space sounds like? It's silent, surely, as sound needs air to travel. But guess what? Clever scientists have taken data collected by telescopes and sonified it into orchestral music. Using the same information that scientists gather to create images of the universe, we now know what galaxies sound like. I could describe it, but honestly, the beauty of this is listening in. So put your feet up and enjoy this short musical story. You may want to switch it off if you're driving.
what a way to close out T-minus for June 28, 2023. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for a nap. But for additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email me at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead of the rapidly changing space industry. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. This episode was mixed by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Calf. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman and I'm Alice Carruth. Thanks for listening. T-minus.